Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 35th installment of the SUAS News podcast series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications that are relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, as always, Patrick Egan, and I'd like to say our uh, usual hello and welcome to the co-host of the program, Mr. Gene Robinson. Hello, Patrick. We're ready to roll on this end. All right, excellent. Uh, every time I say that, I want to danger, danger. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, I'm sure you've never heard that. Anyway, never. I know, I know. Let's uh, let's as we usually do um, talk about some of the news stories that may have uh, caught your eye this week, uh, Gene. What what would you see? Well, I'm pretty excited. Uh, it's been posted up on SUAS News, but uh, I was invited to. Uh, participate in the Next Gen Institute's safety team, and uh, I was pretty excited to get that just for the holidays and uh, sent them confirmation that uh, I'd be willing to to participate and help out anywhere we could. I think it's going to be a a pretty big deal for uh, just about all of us if we're involved in the unmanned aircraft industry, especially the small unmanned aircraft industry. And uh, I'm looking forward to to giving those guys some input and seeing if uh, we could make a difference. Excellent, excellent. Well, um, I do think that that's a good thing. Um, you know, they, there's a gaping hole in the, uh, let's say, empirical knowledge side of this effort. And I think it's going to be great, anybody who read the story, uh, to have your acumen on board and at the table. There'll be a lot of times you'll be like, now, wait a minute. You know, because uh, of that lack of, of, of knowledge. And so I think that's great. And I also want to reiterate that the SUAS News will uh, is pledging support for some of the overhead of what it's going to cost for you to go there. Uh, we put our money where our mouth is here, and we put a percentage of our advertising dollars back into the advocacy effort. So, you know, people that advertise here at the SUAS News are aware of that. And I'm going to uh, ask the listeners and the viewers of the website to please support the uh, the advertisers. At least go to their site, check out what they're offering. Um, we have some good people out there, and they are also uh, giving back, helping the, the community out, and that's a good thing. One other thing that I wanted to mention it just came through this morning. Uh, the, the podcast itself has become a featured podcast at Blog Talk Radio because of uh, all the listens and views that we've had, which is just it's off the hook. I think it's uh, kind of smoked everyone as far as what uh, how many listens and views we've had. And uh, I, uh, to me, it's confirmation that we are offering quality content to otherwise very busy people. They can come here and get information, obviously, that they want to hear about. Uh, um, your thoughts on that, Gene? Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. We just we're, we're gathering up good stories. We're we're getting good positive stories about UA use in not only the NAS but worldwide, and we're trying to separate the wheat from the chaff and get the truth out there. Try to get some of the rumor and propaganda that seems to be running rampant through the entire industry and get that out of the way so we can focus on what the real issues are. And that, I think, has been a great benefit for us. Well, I, I agree with all that. I think the people, uh, you know, are looking for this view. Uh, I mean, the email traffic and comments that I get from people about the, the podcast and the website are, uh, I got to tell you, uh, you know, I'm going to 
throw out a, a thank you to all the listeners and viewers because uh, you know it's 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 really uh, it's humbling you know when people are like oh you know the show was great and I learned so much you know I'm like whoa okay great that's that's exactly what it's all about that's why we're doing this um, uh, you know so I, I uh, wanted to say thank you to everybody and uh, you know upward and onward I hope we're I've got a lot of stuff in the hopper for this year and I hope we can uh, we can just let's say meet everyone's expectations. And the other one other housekeeping issue, I wanted to uh give a shout out to our listeners in the Hindu Kush. And uh it's, I know it's just like vacationing at Sandals without the amenities <laughs> or the pool, but hey, thank you guys for being out there. All right. This week's episode, episode number 35, uh, is the USGS Small UAS Applications. And we have uh, two guests on the program today, and I want to get to it because we got a lot of information. And this is one of those shows where, you know, it's all about applications. So uh, I'm sure I'm going to enjoy this show, and I hope everyone else does. But let's start it off. I want to start the program off by having today's guests introduce themselves to the audience um, and I think we'll start with uh, Mike Hutt, and uh, you can go ahead and maybe tell us, give us a little background, how you got here, what you do, and what the USGS is doing. Okay, thanks, Patrick, for inviting us to join the podcast. Uh, Gene, we actually got the same invitation that you did right before Christmas, so we hope to uh, be able to meet you on the safety committee uh, as it starts rolling after the first of the year. Um, this, is, this is Mike Hutt. I've been involved with remote sensing for about 30 years, first with the Department of Defense, then the Bureau of Land Management, the past several years with USGS, U.S. Geological Survey. The UAS Project Office is funded under the USGS Land Remote Sensing Program, and part of what we do is support DOI by evaluating, monitoring, promising remote sensing technologies Things that we have looked at and implemented in the past include hyperspectral sensors, LIDAR sensors, synthetic aperture radar. And we really look to see how those different evolving technologies can support Department of Interior applications. So we, after watching UAS evolve for several years and really appreciating the effort that the Department of Defense put to developing UAS technology, we determined that UAS had reached a point in the maturity in its maturity that uh, USGS decided that we needed to actually start implementing UAS technology across the department, and we created a UAS project office in May of 2008. Since then, we have worked with the department's Office of Aviation Services to acquire systems, conduct operator training, certify airworthiness of systems, conduct missions. And generally, we are very excited and pleased with what we've been able to do with small UASs so far. Joining me is Jeff Sloan. Uh, Jeff Sloan is a remote sensing scientist for USGS. He's also a certified operator of the systems that UAS or that uh, USGS and the department use, which are uh, small UASs. Before we move on to Jeff's bio. Uh, Mike, could you tell us uh, what your title is over there at the USGS? I'm the USGS UAS Project Office Manager. <laughs> I like that. You know, we got enough acronyms. <laughs> we got enough. Uh, okay. Anyway, we, we uh, are the government. 
I know it's good, and uh, you know it's early in the morning out here in beautiful California. It's sunny, it's nice, it's a little cold, but uh, I'm working on my second cup of coffee. Mr. Sloan, could you please give us a little bio about yourself and how you got here, sir? Yes, I will. Um, my name is Jeff Sloan. I've uh, been working for the government for about 28 years. Uh, started off with the Department of Defense and jumped over to the USGS. Also did a stint with Homeland Security. Uh, but my background is cartography, photogrammetry, and remote sensing. Uh, so then when the UAS came available to us, uh, we became the uh, part of the group that's uh, trained to operate the small uh, Army surplus UAS. Excellent, excellent. Uh, and that's all very interesting. And again, you know, we're me and Gene and Gary are all about uh, practical application of, of this yeah. technology. And now I'm only going to say one other thing, and, and this is for the benefit of our listeners. We have listeners from around the globe. We get uh, a lot of people all over the place. So for the audience benefit, could you please uh, describe what the USGS is and does, please, Mike? Uh, the USGS, U.S. Geological Survey, is a Department of the Interior. The Department of the Interior is one of the older uh, departments within the federal government. It was created in 1849. Um, some of the things the department's involved with is that we actually have land management responsibilities for over 500 million acres of land, or about a fifth of the United States landmass. Uh, Bureau of Reclamation uh, manages nearly 500 dams, 350 reservoirs. They do deliver water to one in every five farmers in the western U.S., uh, supply water to over 30 million people. Department of Interior has oversight of over 1.75 billion with the B acres of, of outer continental shelf, and it manages uh, over 9,000 active oil and gas leases on 44 million acres in the outer, outer continental shelf. Fish and Wildlife Service, National Park Service, Bureau of Land Management hosts over 40, 460 million visitors on over 5,000 recreation sites across the U.S. Energy produced on federal managed lands uh, supplied nearly 30, over 30 percent of the nation's energy. Uh, department's law enforcement workforce is one of the largest in the federal government. Uh, department of Interior also supports wildland firefighting and is a part of the National Interagency Fire Center. What USGS does is we are the science organization within the department. We provide impartial information on focus, focus areas such as ecosystems, natural hazards, water resources, energy, climate, and land use change. We also have a core data mission where the uh, National Mapping Division is located. So we have a lot of things on our plate, and in the military world, we would be a target-rich environment. Yes, uh, that's a lot of grass to mow. Yeah. Uh, and I've been into some of your grass, too, as a matter of fact, Mike. Um, I'd kind of like to think that I kind of maybe helped with the education process here a few years back because I don't know if you guys know it or not, but I'm heavily involved in using UAS for search and rescue, search and recovery. And we had been out in uh, the Mojave Desert and uh, in Death Valley, and uh, as a matter of fact, the DOI owned one of my aircraft that was going to be used for search and rescue. And if I'm not mistaken... Uh, there was an agent out of your Menlo Park office that was uh, using the modified spectra, flying a Tetracam, a multi-spectral imager. And uh, I, 
I heard that it met an unfortunate demise up in the Sierra Nevadas, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been kind of involved with y'all's growth since this started, and I kind of was in on the beginning of it, and I, I was tickled to death to see you guys get more aircraft so that you could get out and do some of this remote sensing that you're doing. Yeah, the, the National Park Service and BLM are very, very interested in small UAS capabilities to either search and rescue we actually have a project coming up in the Mojave later in the year where we're, we're doing some wildlife surveys and also doing an infrastructure survey to, to get a better handle on the sort of materials that have been left behind in the, uh, in the National Monument over the past 30, 40, 50 years. So we'll be out there this year, and we'd love to see you out there with us. I was just going to ask that question without trying to put you on the spot there, uh, Mike. <laughs> But uh, I'd love to have Gene come out there and while you guys are doing that, do a live broadcast if possible. I don't know where you guys will be, but if uh, we'll have to take that offline and see if we could uh, work that out because that would be a, a, fa a fantastic show. And those are the types of shows that our listeners really like. Yeah, part of what we try to do is be very transparent in our missions. And if you go to our website, there's a calendar there. So if there's any missions that you would like to come out and witness and observe what we're doing, uh, just drop us a note and we'll we'll schedule that with you. You know, and I have to commend you on that, Mike. I wish that some of the other federal agencies were uh, open and transparent. I think it's a big mistake. I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, uh, flashing back to the grass, but uh, I think that's a big mistake when these when these uh, federal agencies take this technology and close it off to the public. Um, you know, it only makes people wonder why you, you can't be transparent. So I commend you for that. And Gene, we're going to have to work that out about getting you out there. I think that'll be excellent. Now. I, well, I know you are. This guy, he's ready to go at a drop of a hat. So, you know, you might see him more than uh, more than once. Now, that was all pretty interesting, uh, Mike, uh, about what you do. And I can see that there is uh, absolutely no shortage of potential applications. Um, and, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff going on with that. But what I would like to do is, uh, you know, maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about uh, some of the applications that you're doing now. With with some of this uh, this this unmanned aircraft systems technology. Okay, um, I guess to begin with, USGS has a long history in remote sensing. We've operated the Landsat series of satellites for several decades, and we're actually looking forward to the launch of Landsat Landsat eight in February of this year. So we were doing remote sensing with manned aircraft and satellites. At least Jeff and I, for you know, both of us for over 30 years, nearly 30 years. So what UAS provides us is a way to look longer, closer, and more frequently at some of their most area, your most remote areas of the Earth, which are the lands that really the Department of Interior manages. And a lot of these lands are too expensive or too dangerous to monitor with manned aircraft or on the ground observations. So using small UAS is it really enhances our our ability to to track long-term landscape changes and in, in addition we're looking forward to the day that we can really quickly assess landscape altering events such as wildfires and volcanoes and really make UAS a part of our everyday capabilities and technologies. 
So in the department, when we start, first started the program, the wildlife biologists were the first group to really in, endorse and embrace UAS technology. Some of the things that they're looking at are monitoring and intertwining wildlife. We've had several missions where we're uh, counting waterfowl, specifically sandhill cranes. We've had uh, elk and moose surveys. Um, a lot of wildlife monitoring inventory uh, requirements coming out of the, the wildlife biologist. The next group that really was wanting to start using UA, UAS were the geologists. One of their interests in are things like detecting, monitoring landslides, mapping fault zones. Uh, the volcanologists are interested in using UAS to monitor volcanic gases as one of the keys that they can use to help monitor the status of various volcanic events. The hydrologists are very interested in a couple of different things. They had different uh, shoreline erosion projects that we worked on. They're interested in things like monitoring stream and water body temperatures using thermal surveys. In the past, thermal surveys have been pretty expensive, and so putting a thermal camera on a small UAS affords the, makes it affordable for them to conduct thermal surveys that they haven't been able to do in the past. The fishery biologists are also interested in the temperature gradients and streams and water bodies to, to help monitor different aspects of changes in uh, fishery habitat. Ecologists were probably the next group that came to us and really what they're wanting to do is use the UASs to help them uh, monitor and map habitats. Um, public safety is a, is a big program within the department and they're very interested in using UAS to monitoring things like as uh, Gene had mentioned search and rescue and also monitoring pipelines, wildland firefighting. In general, what we're looking at is if the observation can be done with a manned aircraft today, we really anticipate doing it with an unmanned system in the not too distant future. Well, uh, you know, <clears throat> only a couple of uses you mentioned there. So uh, you guys really like <laughs> need to. Look for we do a lot of different things, so it, it makes it pretty exciting to work with evolving evolving technology. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, well, I'm just sitting here, and I, I want to let Gene in on this, but I, I'm just sitting here going, uh, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, this is the stuff that we've been talking about for like the last eight years, seven years. Hey, this is all the stuff you can do. And I have to tell you, and I mean, I would consider myself pretty well versed in the uh, industry and the technology and the applications and all the rest of that, but you're blowing me away over here, Gene. You know, I, I've got to admit, I'm a pilot first, but uh, since I started flying small unmanned aircraft, I've, I've gotten to appreciate the payload that's being flown. Typically, it's always been in my head. I use my, you know, Mark One standard issue eyeballs to to act as the payload and and collect the data that I needed. But I discovered that the, the things that we put in our aircraft, the the cameras, the sniffers, the sensors, the multispectral imagers, have have just really become important. And and I'd kind of like Jeff, if you could, I know you're a remote sensor guy. I'd kind of like to give you give you the opportunity to present what you see coming up, what you guys are using now, and some of the exciting things that you're doing as far as payloads are concerned. Yeah, I can. Um, a lot of the, just the size of these cameras that are available, 
uh, as well as how we're able to maneuver the these vehicles uh, and then the low altitude that we're able to fly it adds a whole lot of uh, capabilities that we were never able to do before we're just scratching the surface right now we just have natural color uh, cameras as well as a thermal uh, detector but uh, once we branch into multispectral uh, or even into some of the radar and laser type uh, sensors, it's unlimited what you can do with this. Nearly every day we're contacted by somebody who has a small payload that can fit on a UAS and they're getting smaller and more capable every day. So we're looking at um, gas sniffing capabilities, we're looking at the wildlife biologists are probably most excited about the ability to pick up uh, radio transmissions over sub over an elk or a moose or a grizzly bear who has a radio collar on the on the animal, and if we can triangulate that radio signal, then they are spending a lot of time right now doing searches on the ground or with manned helicopters and. Aircraft, and so if we can put that capability on a small UAS, they're they're probably the most excited about the ability to triangulate a radial signal. Uh, there are also people who are talking to us about uh, putting radio repeaters up on small UASs to help radio yeah. communications for wildlife or for the wildland firefighters. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that with the uh, the RFID, I'm assuming, tags, because uh, I'd talked to people a few years ago uh, that were talking about that for, like, livestock. And, and also that they could monitor that with those RFID chips, they could monitor the temperature of these animals and thus monitor the health of the animal. Is that kind of the same deal with the wildlife? Are they doing that, or is it just tracking? Uh, you know? Primarily tracking, but we do have a group of, biologist up at uh, another center uh, uh, up in Fort Collins and what they're wanting to do is monitor the temperature of different animals and uh, relate that back to the, the wildlife uh, health. One of the things that they're looking at is starting off some evaluations of uh, livestock, hogs, cattle, and seeing if they can get to the fine point of the thermal signatures to see if they can detect healthy and unhealthy herds. Yeah, there's there's a lot of potential there. I'm not a I'm not a trained veterinarian or anything, but uh, I can see definitely see the potential for that. Interesting stuff. Um well, uh you know, I mean we we went over a lot of the benefits, uh, obvious benefits of small unmanned aircraft systems or even unmanned aircraft systems in remote sensing. And I want to, you know, some of the moves, I, I want to just delve into it a little bit deeper because, you know, when I was doing it, uh, you know, commercially and I had my uh, UAV photography business going, the benefit that I saw for my customers or whatever you want to call them at that end was that I could get that information for them, go out to the site, get the information and have it in their email inbox within, you know, the morning. And that uh, speed of information one, and then also I was getting directly what they wanted, and they could direct me while I was still out there, hey, this is the information that we need. Are those some of the benefits you see uh, using this technology besides of obvious uh, cost savings advantage to the taxpayer? Uh, are, are those some of the advantages you're seeing, or maybe you can expand on some of the advantages that you're seeing with this remote sensing? 
In many cases, UAS technology is the only cost-effective way to gather Earth observations for the wide variety of applications that we've talked about earlier. You guys are aware of this, but you know, manned aircraft flights may not be feasible due to safety concerns. Um, a lot of the DOI lands are in pretty remote areas, so it becomes cost prohibitive to, to acquire remotely sensed data using manned aircraft. Uh, hazardous weather conditions, smoke conditions, uh, associated operations costs. Satellites are you know hindered by their, once the satellite goes up, it's pretty much in orbit and you may get uh, image at whenever the set resolution is and the set uh, revisit rates, which are usually not when you want to actually image something. Um, so our goal on the cost side is really looking at a 10 to 1 cost savings of using a small UAS over a traditional manned aircraft, recognizing that what we're talking about is the remote sensing, acquiring remotely sensed data. We, we still anticipate and don't forecast that uh, manned aircraft are going to go away anytime soon and that we will continue to use manned aircraft for moving people and goods around. Uh, so that, that's kind of the major benefits are that, you know, the cost is a major benefit, the safety is a major benefit, and the ability to do things that we haven't been able to do previously because of safety and cost factors. So we're now able to monitor on the ground things like phenology that maybe we collected data once every month. Now we can do that as often as the scientist feels it's necessary. And there's there's obviously some benefit to that, correct, Jeff? Yeah, um, just like Mike's saying, we're, we still need that up the data that comes from the satellites or the aerial platforms. We're just adding another layer of information. But the speed at which we can get that and the maneuverability and and even the you know the video live video feeds down where we can get interaction with people like what you were saying uh, for a quick turnaround uh, it's certainly there with the UAS. Go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to say one of the things that we recognized is that the the processing side of things are, are lagging behind. That we have all these new sensors and capabilities, and we're looking at some low cost solutions to actually process the data, but processing the data being collected by the UAS is the full motion video. The other data is is, is that uh, industry is still emerging. Uh, we're, we're also recognizing that we're acquiring remote sensing processing capabilities for under $3,000 now that also used to cost us over $100,000 to get similar similar capabilities. Is, yeah, the Sorry, go ahead, Gene. I was, I was going to mention that one of the things that we run into, and, and in terms that I think a lot of our listeners can understand, is just take, for example, still photography. Don't even include video. For, we go out and we'll do a lot of high-resolution imagery on a search, and, and we can collect literally terabytes of data, hundreds and hundreds of pictures. And then you have to go through with a computer and you put them on a computer, distribute them. Some of these images are rather large. Some of the, uh, the the bandwidth may not be there that you need to get it out there, so you're having to, to downsize them. And then you have to go through and do the change analysis, or you have to actually view the picture or have someone trained that can view the picture and look through it. And that's the kind of processes that 
we've been looking at for a long time, and I know you guys are going to be having to take a real hard look at, and, uh, you know, can you do that on your laptop? And uh, can you process that image effectively on your laptop and get it to the other scientists that require the information? And, and that was what I was going to ask is, is are you guys, are you looking at things like uh, uh, wide area distribution and that sort of thing as solutions to your data issues? Are you uh, going to mainframes or just w what kind of approach are you guys taking toward that? Well, it, one of the things that we're able to do is, uh, since we're flying video images and we're uh, using laptops in the field to download the images, we actually in real time or near real time can retransmit those video images out to across the internet. And we're doing that today so that if you're interested in a specific topic, whether it's a wildfire or a habitat survey or whatever it might be, you can actually view that video in the uh, Washington DC, Denver, Sacramento, all at, all at the same time. We actually have a chat window built into that so that if somebody in Washington DC wants the operators to hover over a specific area or to go revisit something, we can do that with today's technology. And that's really, really, really low cost to us. Um, the processing side of things, we on our website have a technology assessment um, link and what we're trying to do is work with other people, Forest Service, Department of Defense, universities, to see what different people are doing on the processing side of things. And so we have some assessments on what we're looking on as far as the image processing side of things on our website. But it's, again, that's, that's one of the things that also the sensors change every day, and the processing capabilities change pretty much every day. Sure. Well, and I like the approach that you're taking. It sounds like you're taking a uh, a, pr a pretty forward approach with the technology, because uh, all of that stuff is, you know, it's great. That's what we should be doing, and I, I wish we had more proliferation of this. Now, I did want to ask, this is one of the questions that I had, and, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, and then Gene was talking about something, uh, too, but... What types of unmanned aircraft systems are you using? Are you using uh, like store-bought, um, surplus or homebrew stuff or a hybrid? Can you uh, elucidate? We have made a decision that we're going to, within the Department of Interior, we are only interested in operating small UASs, specifically systems under 20 pounds. And a couple of reasons for that, cost of the systems, uh, cost of maintenance. We are anticipating that those will be the first systems actually allowed to operate routinely in the national airspace. But what we are operating today, we have the AeroVironment Raven and we have the Honeywell T-Hawk. The Raven is a 4.4-pound aircraft and the T-Hawk is, is approximately 20 pounds. In general, what we want to do is maintain a fleet of systems so that we minimize our operator training expenses, maintenance expenses, associated data processing requirements. So we're trying to standardize what we're doing across the department. Um, so what we're, what we're also recognizing is that the small UASs aren't going to meet all of our needs. So what we're looking at is hopefully in the not too distant future, 2015, we will be able to contract with commercial companies to acquire 
access to data being collected by larger UAS systems so that when we're doing things like uh, statewide surveys of aerial photography or LIDAR surveys, we can reach out and contract for those capabilities in the future. So largely what we're doing is maintaining a fleet of systems and that we're doing, uh, conducting a lessons learned, uh, updating the U.S. roadmap that we published a couple of years ago. And we're going to recommend one of the next generation of small UASs that uh, we're interested in acquiring, maybe in 2014 sort of time frame. All right, and that that kind of uh, I, that makes sense to me. I understand uh, what you're saying with that one. Uh, trying to you know uh, standardize your training and your maintenance program and all the rest of that. But you know that uh, brings up a couple more questions in my mind, and one of them is, and you probably already covered this, but uh, just uh, roughly, how long have uh, have you been at this? Went through the USGS. Um. The project office was formed in 2008, and we actually got uh, pretty lucky, and the Army provided us with survey surplus Ravens in 2009, and we started flying missions in 2009-2010. Okay, and then the other question, I would because it sounds like, you know, I, I'm listening to you speak here, uh, Mike, and it... Uh, Sounds like you've you've put a little bit of thought into this, and it's definitely not willy nilly. And I'm I'm pretty impressed how you put this together. So the next question is: um, Has the FAA come to you guys for data or uh, applications or some, let's say, empirical knowledge? Because it sounds like you're building it out there. You're not horsing around. So have they come to you and asked you for any data? Most of our interaction with the FAA has been through the COA process. Hmm. So they haven't, nobody's come from, uh, let's say, the UAPO. You haven't heard from anybody down there saying, hey, you know, it looks like you guys are, uh, you got some COAs over here. Uh, you know, like I said today, we're, we're doing this podcast. I'm only talking to you here for a few minutes, and I'm starting to realize that you got your thinking cap on. You know what you're doing. You know how you want to use it. You're using it in remote areas, all the rest of that. You would think, I mean, to me, uh, from what you're telling me, you, you, we hit the mother load as far as the data is concerned and application data. And I'm a little surprised to hear, you know, because I, I know there's a big hole. We've been hearing this for years that the FAA, well, we don't have any data on uh, these things being operated. So uh, I'm a little taken. We've actually, we've actually uh, been invited by the UAPO to join one of their working groups. Um, that is also an invitation we received right before Christmas. Uh, we were a part of a working group on the XCOM, which is the NASA uh, DOD FAA Executive Oversight Group related to UAS. So mm -hmm. we have had some involvement with the FAA and some of the executive level committees. Hmm. Well, that's that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, and then I guess uh, you know that was a question I was going to ask you, uh, you guys about the the COA process, and I mean being being a, a, a federal group, how how do you find the the COA process to operate, and have you seen any improvement since the congressional mandate? Um, we have a pretty good working relationship with the FAA, and so one of the things that USGS does, we have it within the Department of Interior, we have a Office of Aviation Services. 
So the Office of Aviation Services was created as a focal point within the department. So they manage the manned and unmanned aircraft. So we work with project scientists and resource managers to put a COA in place. It undergoes a USGS aircraft safety review, and then it's sent to OAS to review. And actually, OAS submits all of the DOI across the department. So they process Park Service, BLM, Office of Surface Mining, and USGS COAS. And hmm. so we, we actually um, have been working with the FAA on the, on the COA process and are able to call them and work with them and in many cases ask them what they think about a project before we actually go to the effort of submitting a COA. Uh, the current COA package can be fairly labor intensive and and require a lot of effort to to get a uh, project approved. Right, and I mean, is that a you know if you're if you're going to do something where like you're going to do some mapping or whatever, it's probably not a big deal. But if it involves you know herds of animals that are migratory or uh, you know fire or flood or some other event or even a, you know a potential volcano eruption. Might be a little clunky, uh, but you know we did hear that they've sped things up. Uh, have you had any experience since things have been uh, expedited? Um, I, I don't know that we've really seen a lot of changes since the reauthorization language came out. It seems like it's pretty much the same process for us. We're, mm. we're really looking forward to the day when the small UAS rule comes out and we can operate. Um, small UASs in a, in a more routine manner, so we don't necessarily have to go through the, the co-op process. We tend to scare a lot of users away when we tell them it'll be 60 to 90 days before we get from the project for them. I know, it scares me. <laughs> but uh, I know it's, it's hard to work through. And then, uh, Gene, you know, you probably have a little insight on that for the listeners. Uh, Gene's uh, usual applications are... They needed to be a little bit faster, Gene. Yeah, that's true, and, and we discussed that with the UAPO. But I, I don't know what y'all's turnaround is, you know. But a typical application has taken anywhere from six to eight months for a COA. Uh, I know I'm, I'm currently starting another uh, activation of a, a, a COA that we have in place now, and. It has been a problem. Have you all been running into those sorts of time frames? Have you been getting your COAs turned around quicker than that? For most of our applications where we're flying in pretty remote areas, we're um, flying. One of the advantages is that we, we only fly two aircraft, so, and we have the airworthiness behind us. We have the operator training uh, approved by the FAA. Uh, we were down to about six weeks turnaround on standard uh, was on the on the ones that were more difficult um, getting close to operating close to urban environment uh, those take a little bit longer hey uh you know you just mentioned training you kind of touched on that and I was just wondering now are, did you uh, come up with your own training program or are you using the vendor training program? So what we did was a lot of our lessons learned came straight out of the military. So initially we started off modifying the Army's uh, Raven and T-Hawk training programs. 
and we've since modified those programs and added uh, additional information to those training. So as a public agency, the Department of Interior actually trains and certifies our UAS operators and puts the operators through a, a two-week training class out of uh, Boise, Idaho, and we have three or four training sessions a year for both the Raven and the T-Hawk. And so you're certified to operate those systems We've probably put 30 or 40 people through those training programs, and we've put both contractors and government employees through those. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's some, uh, definitely some good insight because I was always kind of curious about that too. Uh, you know, and I'm sure there's uh, your applications are a little bit different than DOD. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is, uh, you know, you had discussed a roadmap that you guys had come out with, and I love to read these roadmaps. I'm, I'm currently aligned myself with the Air Force estimation of, of full NAS integration in 2047, which is be their, uh, that's their 100-year anniversary, but people are like, well, what do you really, you know, when do you think this is, we're going to have full integration? And I'm like, oh, at this rate, I'm with the Air Force. Um <laughs> But I would be, uh, I'd definitely be interested in seeing your roadmap, the new one when it comes out. We'd definitely love to see it over at SUS News if it was possible for us to um, to post that. Also, I want to throw this out here too: is if you ever have any press releases or you're doing some work or, and you think it's relevant to the community, please share with us because uh, that's that's kind of what we're all about here. People want to know, hey, how am I going to use this? And positive uses like this are the ones that definitely need to be highlighted. You have a public out there that's kind of scared of this technology, but really they're they're not so apprehensive about this technology when you say, "Hey, you know, I'm out here looking for moose." You know, I don't personally I don't I have never talked to anybody that has a problem with something like that or or public asset management or wildfires or anything else. It's really the the crux of the biscuit comes right down to people don't want to be uh, monitored in their backyard like a moose. But uh, I want to definitely throw that invitation out there. And I also would like to uh, give you the opportunity to uh, give us their website if, if you have a website address where, where some of this work is, is highlighted. Yeah, the, the roadmap is Thanks for the uh, invitation, by the way. The the roadmap sure. is actually on, on the uh, web, our website. Uh, website address is http colon slash slash uas.usgs.gov. Usually, what I just do is I Google USGS UAS and it pops up. Well, that's I, how I, I feel like most people don't memorize web addresses, so so if you just Google it, it uh, pops up pretty quickly. So the our roadmap is on the website. We are just starting the processing, process of revising that. We would love to be able to reach out to you guys and get your input to our update. Hey, we're here, man. That's what we're here for. We're here to help uh, educate and disseminate information. Um, I see us as one huge global community. I would, I, I, if you haven't been to the uh, the symposium in Europe that UVS International would. RPS uh, 2013. I'd suggest you guys, if you got the budget to go, you're going to talk to uh, civil aviation authority people from uh, around the world and Europe, and they would be very interested to hear about the work that you guys are doing. Uh, they're very receptive to that. And um, 
Of course, again, if there's anything we can do, please uh, let us know. Gene, anything you'd like to add? We're, we're down here at the one-minute warning, so go fast, sir. Yeah, love to work with you guys. I'd love to be able to, to be involved in anything you guys are doing out there. But uh, absolutely would like to do the, the live podcast from one of your ops out there. That would be a fantastic thing. Uh, we, we look forward to it. All right, that's excellent. We'll have to. Uh, you'll have to look over that uh, schedule, Gene, because we will need to. We don't want to, uh, <laughs> unless we get you a satellite phone. I don't know if you guys caught the podcast when I was out at White Sands. It was pretty rough, but uh, you know, it's a mixed bag. You get what you get when we're out in the field. It depends on what the comms are out there, uh, you know. And it's hard to see smoke signals uh, over a podcast. <laughs> so we'll see what happens that come in the future. Uh, as far as uh, today's guests go, my cut Jeff Sloan, I, I really appreciate you guys coming on. This was a great podcast, extremely informative. Um, and I, you know what? Well, I'm, I'm sure we're going to want to have you guys come back in the future. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hey, no problem. Until next week, Gene, see you. Everybody, have a good week, and we'll see you again. Take care. We'll see you guys.